Romantic, pedantic, and hypothetical Semantic and frantic, real or theoretical They give you the stats, and they give you the news It's a baseball podcast you should choose Effectively Wild is here for you About all the weird stuff that players do Authentically strange and objectively styled Let's play ball It's Effectively Wild It's Effectively Wild it's effectively wild. Hello and welcome to episode 1985 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Riley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Not bad. How are you? You know, um, I'm fine. I'm better maybe than Reese Hoskins. Mm, yeah. Um, but otherwise I am... Well, um, cause, uh, you know, we're, we're here, we're in the, the post WBC glow. Mm-hmm. We are, uh, gearing up rapidly for opening day and, uh, yeah, there you go. Remember when Shohei Otani pitched to Mike Trout? Yeah, I really do. <laughs> yeah. That was cool. That happened. That happened. <laughs> I did want to bring that up again. I may bring that up in every future episode yeah. of Effectively Wild in some way, but there was a viral little mini thread by CJ Nitkowski, the broadcaster and former pitcher who put a pitch clock on that plate appearance and uh-huh. pointed out that basically every pitch in that confrontation would have been a pitch clock violation. And I suppose that will probably be the last plate appearance we see between MLB players that was played without the pitch clock. So if that kind of closes the book on the pre-pitch clock era, what a way to go out. And the WBC, I think some games probably made a great case for the rules that have been in place in spring training, but not in the WBC. And then other games, I think people who are opposed to some of those rules seized on the WBC. And said, hey, isn't this fun? And look, no new rules, (laughs) right? But obviously, it's completely different. We're talking about a two-week tournament here with just a few games with super high stakes. So, of course, you're a little more lenient when it comes to time. And I think that's where I am If we single out incredible plate appearances like this, and and there was a fun article by David Schoenfield at ESPN that I may have brought up on the podcast before where he went back and applied the pitch clock to great plate appearances throughout history, like Kirk Gibson's Homer and just those memorable moments and found that many of them would have violated the pitch clock. And so the takeaway was maybe this is good on the whole, but also there could be some cost in these particularly exciting moments. So I think there are two ways you could look at it. One is just that, well, you can't really extrapolate from Otani versus Trout, one of the most exciting plate appearances I've ever seen, and say that it's going to cost us because every now and then, every some number of years, you might have some plate appearance like that, where obviously you're not sweating some extra seconds because you're on the edge of your seat. And if anything, the extra time enhances the drama. So you could say, well, that's just an outlier. We shouldn't use that in our calculus here. It shouldn't be a consideration. Or I suppose you could take the opposite stance and say, well, actually, these moments are so important and so memorable, and these will be the things that we retain from this season forever, that we should make some special dispensation, some exception for those plate appearances. And that's what Nitkowski was arguing in his thread. 
He was saying he hopes that MLB decides to eliminate the pitch clock in the ninth inning of close games within three runs, for instance. That happens fairly often. So that would be a pretty big change. And I don't think MLB is inclined to do that. But there's no way to say like, well, if we designate one plate appearance every now and then as like, this is an all-time great historic plate appearance. (laughs) Like if Shohei Otani faces Mike Trout in the bottom of the ninth in a one-run game with two outs in the championship game at the WBC, then we will suspend the pitch clock. Like how wide do you go and how narrow do you go in trying to preserve the drama in those moments without slowing down the vast, vast majority of other moments that are not like that where you want to trim that time? Yeah, I I I appreciate the instinct here, right? Um but I do think that the the vast the the vast majority of the time you're not going to notice. You're just yeah. not going to notice. And we might come around to that like 2 weeks from now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um I would be open Ben to us keeping an eye on it and thinking about as we progress through the season and as we we do get used to seeing this in-game action with actual stakes in not, you know, Mike Trout and Otani stakes most mm-hmm. of the time, but stakes that exceed those that we um we appreciate in spring training. To like think about adjusting. And I know that the the league has already sort of thought about um, some adjustments to the rules after spring. I imagine that they will be monitoring closely to see what tweaks might be necessary. But I'd be open to us thinking like, okay, here's here's how this goes in the regular season. Is there anything about the implementation of this that we want to be different specifically for postseason play, which is the closest equivalent to this, right? Because like even really good teams facing off against each other, I just think you benefit from the pitch clock. But I I have some sympathy for the idea that perhaps there is a category of game. And I think that that's probably the cleanest way to delineate it. A category of game, not like, you know, a runaway fun fact. (laughs) But (laughs) like a, a category of game where we say, look, we just want guys to be able to kind of be themselves. Um, and the the regular season versus the postseason is maybe where you draw that distinction the most readily because we already have distinctions in in postseason versus regular season play, right? Like even with the the permanence of the zombie runner, they're not going to zombie runner in the postseason, right? They're still mm-hmm. not going to zombie runner in the postseason. I think that my understanding no, as far of that. I know. Yeah. So I, I think that we acknowledge that there are instances where, you know, we we kind of keep separate and special a, a particular set of games and and the postseason versus regular season delineation tends to be where that comes into play most often. I, I think we we can be open to that. Like you're not you're not um a curmudgeon. There's no yelling at clouds if you say, hey, let's keep an eye on it, you know, mm-hmm. um as the the regular season progresses and then re- potentially reevaluate in September. But um but I think I think it's gonna be okay. Scott Boris had come out and said that he didn't want a pitch clock in the postseason, and Evan Drellick asked MLB about that. This was yeah. back in January, and right. Evan talked to Morgan Sword, the MLB executive, who said ultimately the committee decided to keep the same rules throughout the game for a couple of reasons. One, didn't like the idea of playing different parts of the game under different rules, and of course I thought, Morgan. <laughs> come on, Morgan. 
Morgan. <laughs> Zombie runner. Oh, come <laughs> on, Morgan. It's a really... I mean, you... I don't like that idea either, but <laughs> you seem okay with it when it comes to putting a runner on second base. Anyway. Can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, I've like met in a group setting Morgan Sword. I don't know Morgan. Um, you think, you think when a guy's name is Morgan Sword and you're going to put an emphasis on any part of his name, it's going to be the sword part yeah. because his last name is literally Sword. It's mm-hmm. Sword. It's yep. Sword, Ben. But actually, I think the more satisfying, oh, come on, is, uh, is, is surprisingly the Morgan. It's the Morgan. So I yeah. say, Morgan. Morgan, come on, come on. <laughs> he continued, too, they felt it was unfair for some players to have some pitching with a timer and some not pitching with a timer. And lastly, you know, the pace issues are most acute for the end of the game. And that, I think, if we're going to deliver to fans what they're asking for, it's important that those timer rules stay in effect throughout the game. And I am sympathetic to that because postseason games, they are painfully slow. They are slower than the regular season. And so the gains that you're going to get from the pitch clock, and especially because that's when people are paying attention and the stakes. And I know that that makes the time less onerous, but also the games are really late. And then everyone complains because the kids can't watch the games, even though that was kind of always the case to some extent. But (laughs) just to do away with that narrative of uh, how will the kids ever watch postseason baseball? Live on the West Coast. I don't know what tell you <laughs> and really like unless they're gonna make it very narrow and say like elimination games or yeah. we will do it like even most postseason games i'm fine with uh hurrying those a little along a little bit more than they are and then if you make it too narrow and you say well the vast majority of the time we have a pitch clock and then we don't yeah then are you going to cause issues with once you come back from the non-pitch clock game? Are there going to be violations because people stop adjusting to the cadence of that? And are there other issues that players are going to be off their game or would they just immediately adjust to the mindset of, okay, no time again. I can just take all the time I want. Would they take even more time because it just feels so luxurious? I'm just, I'm okay with it. And I feel like, sure, I savored the extra seconds of Trout versus Otani. And you can play that game with a lot of historic plate appearances, but also that plate appearance would have been awesome even yeah. if it had been a little faster is yeah. the thing. <laughs> like, yeah, the extra seconds maybe enhanced it a little bit more, the drama and the buildup. But if we could just trim some seconds out of that clip, would it not still be super exciting? Because it's the stakes and the situation right. that makes it most exciting. Yeah. And yeah, it was super special because of the little extra moments. And we didn't even talk like I love the the Casey at the bat aspects of that confrontation and like the little nods and head shakes and smiles that Trout would do after he got beaten on a pitch. And yeah. just like, yep. All right. All right. I see you. You know, yeah. <laughs> just like that little acknowledgement. And my wife was reminding me actually of the 2021 home run derby when Otani was kind of gassed when he was going head to head with Soto and he was struggling a little. And then Mike Trout facetimed him when he was at the plate and Shohei was like Mike and it helped him kind of resettle that was so nice that Trout was there for Otani in that big moment for him and then there they were facing off in this other big moment a couple years later anyway that was just an aside I'm just saying I think those plate appearances would still be very special and it's not ruining them or anything it's it's a lot like some people have said broadcasters are having to adjust because they don't have as much time to tell a story between pitches and yeah that's true but 
it used to be that way. Yeah, right? I was going to say, and, Vin did fine, you know? Yeah, I think it'll be okay. They'll just adjust to it, and there will be still plenty of time for story time in baseball. The games yeah. are still fairly long, so I, yeah. I think it'll be fine, and I, I think, think we will adjust to it. So if there were some way to designate like the uber-important plate appearance and just single them out and say, okay, the normal rules don't apply to this, fine. But then once you do that, you're you're threatening just the, the integrity of the competition, I think, when you start monkeying with things from plate appearance to plate appearance or game to game. So I'm okay with just the blanket. It applies to every game, I think maybe more so than I am with trying to carve out times of games or certain games that are exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's fair because otherwise, you know what you'd have to, you know what you'd have to keep saying, Morgan, Morgan. (laughs) I was happy also, I think that MLB sort of held the line when it came to the the big planks of the pitch clock because, yeah, it was reported that there had been some pushback from players this spring and that they were weighing changes. And I think if there had been big changes last minute before opening day, not the first time that we would have seen that in recent yeah. years <laughs> that's happened, but also it seems to be working. And yeah. I'm kind of glad that they're holding, they're sticking to their guns on this one. And so what came out was not really any major changes. It was more like a memo with kind of clarifications and sometimes when there's a slight exception and what happens if uh, your pitch com is malfunctioning or if a catcher is uh, at batter on the bases, then maybe they get a little extra time to prepare for the next inning or if the pitcher is involved in a play and is not near the mound, then maybe you slow things down a little, like little edge cases, which, okay, fine. You know, I, I think you have to be wary of players uh, looking for just ways to exploit the system or or make the system more yep. relaxed. Of course, they're always going to try to take more time. That's how we ended up in this situation yep. where you have a pitch clock imposed, but also you put it in place and you get feedback from people. And of course, they've gotten plenty of feedback in the minors as well, but you see whether it survives contact with the enemy, especially or essentially, and whether you have to change your plans. And they didn't change anything major. So I no. was sort of relieved to see that they weren't going to loosen things when it came to the 15 seconds or the 20 seconds. And so the the most buzzed about clarification here was actually about the the ball children, the the ball boys and ball girls, the ball people, whatever we call them. <laughs> but <laughs> the ball people. Apparently, they are going to be hurried along too. Yeah. So the ESPN piece says new standards will be enforced for bat boys and bat girls whose ability to quickly retrieve equipment will help efforts to speed up the game. According to the memo, the league will evaluate the performance of bat boys yeah. and bat girls and could ask teams to replace them if their performance is considered substandard. So no more lollygagging for the bat children, the bat, bat folk. children. <laughs> I love I love this scenario because, I mean, like, it seems like it's going to be deeply weird. Um, so there's that piece of it. Uh, we are going to get at least one story about a child crying. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's going to happen. And I don't want to, like, I'm not delighting in the prospect of a kid crying, to be clear, but. Um, I, I do appreciate this potential wrinkle to the situation. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that every ball boy, and they are mostly boys. Like I, I, it seems as if the place where there is diversity among the ranks, um, in this score is with the, the 
folks, I'll say folks, because it, it can encompass all manner of people of ages and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, who sit down the line and like retrieve right. foul balls. Like that's where, and I don't know, is it because the, the predominantly ball boys have clubhouse access? And so they, is that why? Do we have Maybe. a sense of why there's, um, you know, gender segregation there? Anyway, um, here is what I understand to be true. Not universally, but many, many members of the ball boy ranks. They know somebody, Ben. Yeah. They know, mm-hmm. they know someone. They're related to someone. They're somebody's kid or nephew or cousin or, you know, something. So mm-hmm. I I imagine that we're going to get a situation at some point this year where the son of a general manager, the cousin of a of a big leaguer, the nephew of a general partner of a team is told, look, you're not cutting it. We got to let you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to feel bad for that young person because like, I'm sure that they really like being a, 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 a ball person. <laughs> A ball kid, a yeah. ball kid, <laughs> sure. Um, but uh, but also, we're gonna get at least one funny story, um, mm-hmm. and maybe you know they'll they'll meet disappointment, um, and feel self conscious, and then like become a stand up comedian. You know, I, I feel like that's a port- an important part of that pipeline. So, um, like. Are they gonna are they gonna um give the the foul the foul ball people a hard time? Because some of those folks are like octogenarians, you know. Yeah. Some clubs make a point of like I'm I'm putting hiring in air quotes because I I wouldn't be surprised if some of those are volunteer positions. Um, but like they, you know, they'll have like a retiree sitting in the little on the little stool to go retrieve foul balls and give them to folks in the crowd. Are they gonna fire an octogenarian ball <laughs> foul ball person? Are they part of are they under the is are they in the purview of this focus? I don't know, I don't know but you could imagine that uh, some team could have had some toddler as their ball kid to slow things down, just try to, you know, like extend the time. And they have never had it. No, just, stop. They've never had a toddler ball kid. I mean, what about like uh, like Darren Baker, Dusty Baker's son back in 2002 when he almost got run over? I mean, now I know he's a, an adult and a player himself professionally, but, you know, he wasn't a toddler, but he was not far removed from toddler. But he was <laughs> so, a kid though, right? Like, well, wasn't that he was... A- I mean that was uh, 2002, and he is now 23 years old. I hate so, you for telling me that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're in a fight now. Um, yeah. So he was like three or something. I mean, he so was he very was young. a toddler. He yeah. basically was. Yeah. So you could do that and just slow hmm. things down. So now no loopholes for the yeah, ball but, kids. But famously, like that almost went really badly. So I think yeah. that most clubs have. I right. mean, like I can only speak to. So I know that for. Um, like for the Mariners, the the foul ball, they are often young women. I don't know if they are universally so. Uh, th- those gals are like softball champions. Like you yeah. have to have real yeah. like skill at least. And I, again, I think there's variation club to club in terms of the particular resume one must present in order to fill that role. And I don't even know if they're part of this enforcement i mean i would imagine that there's some focus there because you know they they affect whether the play could continue too you know Mm -hmm. um but like 
they're quite serious. You know, a lot of they'll give the bios and it's like state softball champion, state softball champion, mm-hmm. state softball champion, runner up. Like, you know, they're, they're quite serious. So, um, uh, I, they have opted for, um, proficiency and expertise. Yes. Um, but I think a lot of, listen, Ben, I think there are a lot of Nepo babies in the ball boy ranks. I think <laughs> there are true. a lot of Nepo babies in those ranks. And I think that at least one of those Nepo babies probably gonna get fired. You know? There are a lot of Nepo babies on major league rosters. Yeah. <laughs> they're pretty good at baseball, but still, I think they actually did raise the age minimum for ball kids to 14 in direct response to the Darren Baker incident. So I suppose that loophole was closed, but they still could have had extra slow older kids. Not anymore. Pick up the pace, ball people. I guess this could be an issue for ball dogs, too. Sometimes they get distracted. Anyway, I think it's uh, not surprising, really, that MLB has said, no, we are not relaxing the clock because they're putting some marketing muscle behind marketing the clock and the new rules, right? So there's this new ad. That came out (laughs) that is called Get That Shift Out of Here, which is also a line in the ad. It's just a 30 second spot starring Brian Cranston. This game is for you, the fan. You want the action to flow, the bat on the ball, and daring on the baseballs. This is the game we all want to see. Get the ball, pitch the ball, keep the defense on their toes. Field like Ozzy, run like Ricky. So get that shift out of here. Free up the players to put on a show. It's the best game in the world. Now it's even better. Look, I love Brian Cranston. The ad is uh, its amusing. <laughs> you know it's going to be good when you feel the need to caveat. Like, no, look, I love Brian Cranston. But, well, like, the but is 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 present. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't love the sentiment of, I guess, uh, guess get the shift out of here. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, almost retro, like appealing to, you know, let's get these nerds out of here kind of thing. But also, oh. I think it's it's smart. Marketing, I think. I I understand the approach that MLB is going for here because, again, as I think we have noted, the interesting thing about these rules is that, yeah, they feel new and sort of scary and experimental, but also a lot of them are intended to bring baseball back to what it used to look like, right? Where it used to be faster paced. So no, there was no clock exactly before, but the game moved as if there was a clock. So we're just rewinding the clock, so to speak here, or (laughs) we're going back to traditional defensive alignments, right? It's really just kind of a retro movement in a sense, even though it's sort of a progressive one too. So that's sort of the message of this ad. It's just like, hey, let's uh, let the players hit and run and let there be action and everything, which is good. But I think it's no coincidence you have Brian Cranston, who's a 67-year-old white guy, right? So (laughs) I think he's speaking to 67-year-old white guys in this ad. MLB is basically saying, hey, it's okay. It's safe. Like the water's warm. Come back. (laughs) Yeah, like, we're not trying to ruin the game you know and love. If anything, it'll look more like the game you used to know and love. And yeah. I think it's uh, it's kind of clever. Like, they show a split screen of Francisco Lindor and Ozzie Smith fielding balls. And then they show Ricky Henderson and Mookie Betts running the bases. And again, it's very conscious. Like, we're going back to what baseball was when you were young. And arguably when it was more entertaining as a product in some ways and, and fan-friendly. So... 
I think this is actually a, an okay message. Like, you know, it's very baseball, but it's also like, yeah, I get it, you know? And the tagline is three new rules, more great action. So this is sort of the message that they are putting out there. It just, I don't, I'm trying to put my finger on what about it made me kind of go, oh, because I think that there is a really, um, like, I am pleased and I've been heartened by, like, the commitment that the league has had to really trying to help people understand what this is going to look like this year. I think that they've they have appropriately understood that this is a big shift and that they, (laughs) um, and that they, I didn't even mean to do that one. Sometimes they just come out, um, and that, you know, they will be well served to make this transition as easy as possible for people. And they need to keep explaining it. And even though, you know, folks who've been watching spring training have had exposure to it, that like, there are going to be people who, you know, turn on their favorite team on opening day and are going to be like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And so they have to, they have to do some work. And I think that they have largely done a good job with that. Um, but there is something kind of like, you know, please like my sport about <laughs> this one. Bit, yeah, which is uh, at least better than often they will denigrate their own product, right? Right. And we just watched a WBC where John Smoltz basically spent an entire <laughs> well, two weeks doing that. Yeah, there's that. And also Manfred himself. Now, maybe as a, a means of getting some of these rule changes applied where he will lament uh, the pace of the game and everything. And then you think, oh, you have the commissioner just sort of kind of crapping on his own sport here and making it sound less appealing and again maybe with an eye towards speeding things up now that they've done that they're crowing about how fun and fast and exciting it's going to be and great if if people think that's the case then hopefully they will tune in and they choose brian cranston to appeal to perhaps a certain sort of audience here again like i think it it makes sense i don't know if this is like targeted to me exactly but i think this is an okay message for mlb to be sending and just kind of consciously reassuring people like if anything this will look like the game did when Ozzy Smith and Ricky Henderson right. roamed the bases in the fields. Maybe that is a smart message. Well, and there does seem to be a, a strategic... I would imagine that the particular athletes they selected both from... A, a, I don't, bygone feels like I'm making myself feel old now, but <laughs> like from a different era and the ones that they have selected from the current crop of active big leaguers, like it does feel very... Strategic is maybe the wrong word, but um, considered, right? Because mm-hmm. they want they want people Brian Cranston's age to be like, oh yeah, this looks like it did. But I think they also probably are aware that they don't want people our age and younger to be like, oh, it's going to be stuffy and it's going right. to come with the same sort of, it's going to be freighted with the same cultural nonsense that it was then. And yeah. that, you know, probably made some of the guys they highlighted in that commercials like lives harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I do appreciate that piece of it where it seemed like, you know, they're trying to strike this balance and, and make all of this stuff be understood within the name of, action and enthusiasm and fun um, and not, you know, sort of unwritten rules stuffiness, right? It's about movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, it it begins with Jordan Alvarez bat flipping and Manny Machado kind of pumping his chest, right? Yeah. So So, like there, there is, I I can't imagine that that um, uh, was an accident on the part of whoever put that together. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I did appreciate that piece of it but it's like 
Brian Cranston, eh? You know, <laughs> I I want to know what is the list that they have? Like, cause clearly the league has a list of of the of the famous people who are baseball people, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to know how they decide who they pull. You know, who's coming off the bench uh, right. in these moments? <laughs> because it, again, clearly strategic choices. Mm-hmm. Brian Cranston is really like. 67 years old, eh? Yeah, he looks great. <laughs> but Good for him. He was on Hot Ones maybe a yeah. month or two ago, and he was talking about Vin Scully, and it was very emotional. And oh, so that's nice. He was top of mind, and they thought, hey, let's get this guy on an ad. I haven't seen that Hot Ones yet. You know, mm-hmm. that's Sean. He's a good <laughs> interviewer, that Sean. <laughs> you know, he really is. Maybe we should send our team preview guests <laughs> spicy stuff for them to eat while we preview teams. I worry about his gastrointestinal health, like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> actively. I think about that probably once a week. And it's not like I'm watching a new hot ones every week, you know, sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes I do skip them, Ben, but that's not that's because okay. of Sean. That's, I don't mind if you're not a hot ones completist. It's okay. But okay. we are completists when it comes to previewing all 30 Major League Baseball teams. So we should do that. We have a Padres preview for you today, and we have a Reds preview for you today. AJ Casavell of MLB.com will be joining us for the Padres preview. C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic will be here for the Reds preview. So just telling you where these teams shape up according to the Fangrass playoff odds. The Padres projected for 92.8 wins, which puts them second behind only Atlanta. They have a 60.6% chance to win the NL West and an 87.6% chance to make the playoffs. And that is uh, considerably better than the Dodgers, as you might infer from those numbers. (laughs) And then you have the Reds, who are projected to win 68.2 games with a 0.2% chance to win the NL Central and a 0.6% chance to make the playoffs. So we will be back after the previews with the pass bless and with the trivia answers. So again, the trivia is about the two teams we are previewing, the Padres and the Reds. I want you to guess which team has the better head-to-head record against the other. And then the other preview questions concern individual players who have played for both franchises. So who's the highest career war hitter who has played for both the Padres and the Reds, the highest career war pitcher who has played for the Padres and the Reds, and then the first hitter and pitcher to have played for both the Padres and the Reds at any point. So we will take a quick break now and we will kick things off with AJ Caspell and the Padres. Like you're dreaming and you're sitting up on cloud nine. All right, let's talk about the San Diego Padres, and let's talk to AJ Casvel, who covers the Padres for MLB.com. Hello, AJ. Hello. You wouldn't think that the Padres could still surprise us, but they do. At least they've surprised me. It was another winter of the Padres blowing our minds once in a while, whether it was for an offer for a free agent who didn't accept it or an offer for a free agent who did accept it or an extension for a player they already had. I guess we could start with the big addition, Xander Bogarts. So the addition of Bogarts on the 11-year, $280 million deal followed reported offers for Aaron Judge and Trey Turner that were larger than the ones that those players actually accepted. So 
How high was Bogarts on the Padres' prep list entering this offseason? Was it kind of a case of, well, we're going to spend 300 to $400 million on someone, and we couldn't get Judge, and we couldn't get Turner, so let's go get another shortstop? Or did they have their eyes on Bogarts from the beginning? Yeah, clearly they had money to spend, which, I mean, like considering all that they've invested in the last couple of years, I kind of went into the offseason wondering if, if they felt they had their team kind of in place. Like they had mm-hmm. a lot of really good pieces already and they didn't exactly need a shortstop if you look at this roster. And I guess I, I guess Xander Bogarts was, was clearly high on their list. I know they, they seriously wanted Trey Turner and Aaron Judge as well. Um but I mean AJ Preller's like Xander Bogarts for a long time and I mean who wouldn't? He's a he's a very, very good player. They they paid a lot of money for him and they committed a lot of years to him, but he makes the twenty twenty three Padres an awful lot better, even if he kind of forced them to reshuffle. So I think this was a a situation where the Padres had some money to spend and kind of realized that, that like this whole, this whole city and this whole, uh, this whole project is kind of the whole city's bought into this project and where this, where this thing's headed. And um, they're really, really committed to making the most of it while their windows open and trying to trying to make that window last as long as they can. Yeah, I think one of the things that I appreciate about the opportunity they have in front of them is that it's it's a baseball town, right? San Diego is a baseball town. They don't have a lot of other competition among other pro sports ventures, and it's it's exciting to see them seize that opportunity. And as you mentioned, it has meant some reshuffling with Bogarts, and there will be further reshuffling upon Tatis's return. So for those who are uh, perhaps confused by how you build an, uh, most of a roster out of infielders and particularly shortstops. What, what is their configuration going to be now? And then how are things going to shift around uh, when Tatis returns? And maybe we can use that as an opportunity to talk about uh, what you have witnessed of him as an outfielder at this point. He's looked like really exciting as an outfielder. I think different than in 2021 when he kind of transitioned midseason when they were telling him, hey, we don't want him to, we don't want you to be hurt. So we're just going to stick you in right field where you're less likely to get hurt than if you're playing shortstop and diving around every single day. And I don't know that the investment was there and that he was fully bought in then. Uh, he's fully bought in now, and he seems to be like really enjoying some aspects of right field, particularly getting the show off his arm. I mean, he's kind of there have been a couple times where he's where he's charged baseballs really hard, uh, hit in his direction, and just kind of held that runner at the extra base at the, at the base before where I think the runner would have otherwise been headed, and he's kind of looked stared down the runner and really enjoyed it and really been bought into that. And so to, to answer your first question, he is shifting to, to right field for the time being, at least uh, when he returns from his suspension. And that'll be, that'll force Juan Soto to move to left and it clears room at shortstop for Bogarts. But of course they already had a shortstop last season in Hassan Kim, who will be moving to second and Jake Cronenworth will be moving, moving to first, but he will sometimes be playing second. So like you said, adding Xander Bogarts kind of reconfigures the whole thing, but one of the cooler things I think about this this roster and this project that the Padres are trying to to complete is that they're they're all really good players. Like they're really good and they're really bought into what they have to do to kind of make it all work. And so um, I think the difference between that it's a very different place for Fernando Tatis Jr. between now and where he was in 2021. I think now he's just kind of just desperate to get back on a baseball field and he's embraced the transition to right field. I think uh, in his heart of hearts, if he were to play outfield, he's kind of maybe a little bit more interested in playing center, but the Padres have a gold glove center fielder there and Trent Grisham. Um, 
But right field at Peckle Park is a spot where you can really make an impact. There's a lot of room in that right center field gap. It's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird corner too. And and I think he can show off his arm with with aggressive base runners. He had a really cool he had a really cool uh, quote the other day where he essentially said that I asked him why he was charging, why why he was kind of playing the right field the way he was the way he was playing it and. He said he just wants to look like in right field what he hates to see when he's running the bases. And I don't know if there's a more greedy base runner out there than Fernando Tatis Jr. So uh, if that's how he's going to play it, I'm excited to watch it. Brought up the buy-in, and I wanted to ask you about that because these guys seem like they're all rowing in the same direction in terms of wanting to win a World Series. But I, I did wonder kind of how the all of the shifting around and movement has been sort of perceived in camp because – you know, I could imagine, and it wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't fault him for it. Hassan Kim being like, "Hey, but I did a great job last year. Why are you, why are you doing this to me?" So, what, what has the the process been like to kind of get all of these guys both comfortable in the field and then bought into the process? I, I think the winning has a lot to do with it. I think everyone, I mean, if this roster weren't constructed to win a World Series, I don't know that everyone would be kind of as happy as they are shuffling around the diamond. Now, Hassan Kim has played second base before, and he's been really good there. Um, that's kind of where he started his Padres tenure when Fernando Tatis wasn't, or when Fernando Tatis was at shortstop. There, there's some element of if the Padres hadn't signed Xander Bogarts or if they hadn't signed a shortstop, then all of a sudden there's kind of this this controversy. Like, is Fernando Tatis Jr. the shortstop or is Hassan Kim the shortstop? Kim's the better defensive player. Tatis can kind of do the spectacular, and he's made it clear he wants to play there. And then, weirdly, you kind of settle that tension by bringing in your your new starting shortstop, the guy that's definitively going to play there, even if by some defensive metrics he's not as he's not as good as either of those two other guys. Um, but he's, I guess, in theory, in, in the clubhouse aspect of it, he's earned that right. He's he's the veteran. He's done it, and he can play shortstop. Uh, he can be the guy there, prompting the rest of the rest of the changes. I think another aspect of it all is it's kind of become. Manny Machado's clubhouse and he's bought in and invested and wants to win, wants to win a world series as soon as he possibly can. And the rest of this group kind of takes their cues from him. And if, if it takes kind of a reshuffling of, of some guys and, and Juan Soto had to make the move from right field to left field. And after I know he'd gotten really comfortable in right field too. And, and I guess when a world series is on the line, there, there has to be some egos checked at the door and the Padres have a lot of egos and a lot of egos who are seemingly willing to check those egos at the door. What about Tatis's offense? Are there concerns about any lingering after effects of the suspension, the long layoff, the shoulder, the wrist, et cetera, et cetera? And what does he have to do basically to put everything behind him, make everything forgiven and forgotten? Yeah, he's, I mean, offensively, he kind of got off to a slow start in spring training. I think he was 0 for 16 and he really didn't look like himself. And then I think when he was 0 for 10, he, you could kind of see he was, maybe trying to do a little too much. And then he got that first hit and he has like eight hits and 15 at bats since. And he looks like Fernando Tatis Jr. And he's driving the ball to the opposite field. And um, so I don't know if there's going to be lingering effects. I mean, he had two surgeries on his wrist and he had a surgery on his shoulder. That's a, a it's a, it's a shoulder surgery that I think a lot of guys have struggled to, to come right back from, but he says that his shoulder feels better than it did in 2021. When, if you'll remember, that's kind of when he, I mean, he only played 130 games that season. Otherwise, he probably would have been the MVP, but his shoulder kind of kept dislocating and kept coming out, and he had to essentially take some time off here and there to, to get it right. He says he feels more confident and comfortable in the shoulder. So I guess we'll have to take him at his word for that for now, and he looks pretty good at the plate in the Cactus League. 
But, um, I mean, it, it, as far as what to expect from him offensively, I, I really have no clue. I, it's been so long. I think it'll be 565 days since he last played a game for the Padres when he plays for them on April 20th, which will be his first game back from suspension. And I, it, it looks to me, from what I've seen in spring training in the last week or so, that he's kind of his old self, but that remains to be seen. And then in terms of kind of moving past the suspension, I mean, he's got, he's got work to do to kind of repair his, his image externally, but this, uh, like he's been, he's been wholly welcomed back into, into the Padres clubhouse. And I know there were maybe some questions about that after the suspension last year, this, this team kind of appears to have moved past that in, in terms of welcoming him back. You mentioned it being Manny Machado's clubhouse, and it's going to be Manny Machado's clubhouse for a, a long time to come here. So um, there was speculation that he might exercise an opt-out after this offseason's really rich free agent market, uh, but they were able to get an 11-year, $350 million deal done. What kind of came together for them to get this done before the season started, and what was the thinking of ownership in uh, keeping Manny around for you know another decade? Yeah, owner ownership loves Manny Machado. And I mean, I think all of San Diego loves Manny Machado. So it, it, it's kind of, I think maybe the years and the money and the leverage that the Padres had with the fact that Machado couldn't opt out until the off season, like it didn't have to happen the way it did. The Padres could have essentially asked Manny Machado to prove it for another season. But the relationship is so good between the Padres and the city and ownership and Manny Machado that Maybe they sacrificed some of their leverage by negotiating when they did, but they just really wanted to ensure that Manny Machado was on board for a long, long time. And I think it's, he's an awesome, awesome player. And there's maybe, maybe some intangibles in there that, that, that contract, if you look just at the numbers and what he's expected to produce over the next 11 years, it's not quite, it's not quite good value in that sense. But in terms of, Manny Machado being the guy that I think most of this clubhouse looks to, to, to kind of lead them. And I mean, he proved it last season when he essentially played through a pretty gruesome ankle injury to put up MVP numbers. Uh, and this was before they had Juan Soto, before they had Eddie, when, without Fernando Tatis Jr., he carried the offense. I think there's some intangible qualities there. There's also an understanding that it's not exactly a high-risk signing because Manny Machado has been so steady and he's been so available. And so if you're going to commit to someone for a long time, for 11 years, that's the kind of guy to do it with. And I guess while we're talking about extensions, we might as well talk about Darvish's too, which was surprising in a sense, just the combination of his age and the length of it. So he's going to turn 37 this season, a six-year extension that runs through 2028. So he'll turn 42 that year. And I understand why, at least in the short term, it makes sense and can be affordable. But I guess uh, the bigger picture question, there seems to be a pattern of the Padres pushing the envelope a little bit when it comes to getting around the CPA strictures and lengthening contracts to lower the average annual value. I know that there were some conflicting reports about whether MLB would have approved a hypothetical or actual like 14 year deal that the Padres were contemplating for Aaron Judge. And and they're not the only ones to have at least thought about this. I know it was reported that the Phillies had thought about an even longer term offer to Bryce Harper to bring down that average annual value. But it seems like they're the ones that are maybe going to push things to the point where perhaps the commissioner's office might at some point say, eh, you're trying to skirt the rules here. So I guess this is a combination question about the Darvish extension and also about that tendency for the Padres to uh, try to game the system, I guess, or, or, you know, maybe that's too far to say. I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know if game the system, like that might be too far just because I think you Darvish fully intends to pitch for the next six seasons and the value on that contract. I mean, if he were to hit free agency after this season, if he were to have a season similar to the one he just had, I think you could kind of come up with comparable value. That being said, we all kind of going into the off season thought the Padres would explore contract extension talks with you Darvish. I don't think anyone expected it to be a six year extension. And so that, that was, that was a surprise. And it, 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 it does give the Padres some benefit in terms of lowering their AAV and trying to get them under some luxury tax thresholds that, I mean, they've essentially made a bunch of moves since the Darvish extension to, to, to where they're no longer under those thresholds anyway. So um, I, I think they're just, they just really wanted you Darvish around for the long term, And, and I, I guess if, if the last couple of years on that contract looked, looked, pretty bad AAV wise. I mean, they, they front loaded the deal itself to where Darvish should be paid with commensurate for his performance in the first few seasons. And so I, I, it's, it's such an interesting deal to me because like, this is a pitcher in his late thirties getting a contract that goes into his forties. And just by nature, you tend to think, wow, that's, that doesn't seem very smart, but if there's a guy who can do it, you Darvish is not the kind of guy who necessarily relies on fastball velocity. And I mean, he doesn't throw that many fastballs anyway. He's such a, he's such a kind of unique pitcher in terms of the way he adapts and, and comes up with new pitches and adjusts to the times and studies hitters that I am just, I, I want to see you Darvish pitching when he's 41 years old. I want to see what that looks like. And I suspect <laughs> yeah. it'll be, I suspect it'll be kind of decent if he's a back of the rotation starter when he's 41 and, the Padres get a couple more really great years from him before then. I mean, that's yeah, that's probably he'll, worth the deal. He'll probably have 15, 16 pitch types by then. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, maybe we can stick with uh, pitchers who have signed extensions with San Diego and talk a little bit about Joe Musgrove. What is the state of his toe? I was so used to thinking about Joe Musgrove's ears that um, <laughs> I, I was I was ill-prepared for a toe injury to sideline him. But how is his recovery going and when might they expect him back? Yeah, he wants to be back as soon as possible. And he kind of keeps setting these these targets. I think he wants to be back the first road trip of the season. Um, that is well ahead of when, when he fractured his toe, which he did so in a, in a weight room accident, which sounds really, really, really painful. Um, he, is, he, he is well ahead of schedule. He wants to be even more ahead of schedule than he is. And so he's kind of setting this target of the first road trip of the season, which would essentially mean he misses the first trip through the rotation, but it's available after that. I think the Padres have a better chance of, of starting the year with him on the injured list and essentially using an off day that they have to recreate the effects of a six-man rotation. And then in the third trip through the rotation, they could activate him by backdating his IL stint and throwing him right in against the Mets fittingly with, with, with the ears and everything. So I, uh, I think that's most likely because uh, I think he'd be eligible to return from the IL on April 11th or 12th. That is well ahead of what the Padres thought it would be when he, when he broke his toe. But um, he's also the kind of guy that uh, like he was throwing off a mound a couple weeks after the fact wearing size 16 shoes, which are two sizes bigger than he usually wears and, and wrapping that toe. And he did all this biomechanical testing to make sure that his delivery isn't out of whack in any way. And it turns out it's not. And so uh, I, I wouldn't put it past him to beat the odds and be back for the opening day roster, but I don't think that's what the Padres are planning for right now. 
And the Padres have a lot of other minor casualties. It seems like nothing super severe, but is there anyone who is currently dealing with at least a nagging issue who might miss time or that could be a longer term concern, whether it's Soto or Nola or Pomeranz or Morejon or anyone else? Yeah, those are the guys. Soto's I mean, Soto's obviously concerning because he's Soto, but I think the team is, is fairly optimistic. They initially called it a mild oblique strain. I think now it's just like kind of a soreness in his side. Um, it's not the oblique. It's not his, um, it's not his right oblique, which is the one that if you're a hitter, if you're a left-handed hitter, that's the one that you strain from swinging. It's, it's, it's his left one. And I think the team's optimistic that that's helpful there. That might be down to the wire to see whether he's ready for opening day, but I think they'd still keep him on the roster uh, just because he's Juan Soto. And if you get him in the fifth game of the season instead of the first, I mean, you'd rather have him in the fifth game than put him on the IL. Nola was a really, really kind of scary incident. He was hit in the face by a pitch and kind of came away with it with, with nothing but a, a slightly broken nose and a couple stitches. And, I think the Padres are just kind of extremely thankful that that's all it is. And I don't know if they know what his status is yet going forward until he can kind of start doing full baseball activity. But based on everything they know right now, he is, he could be full go for opening day, which is really kind of a godsend considering the the Padres, I think one of their weak spots might be their, their catching depth. And one of the guys they could ill afford to lose is Austin Nola. I know they have a lot of superstars on their roster, but he's a guy that, that this roster kind of can't function without right now. The other injury concerns, Drew Pomerantz, I mean, he's kind of always been an injury concern, really, since he signed that four-year contract with the Padres. Um, the fact that he had a little bit of a setback or that he's moving slower than expected, I think that might just be more more with the long-term goal of the season in mind. I don't think they expect Drew Pomerantz to make 60 or 70 appearances, I think they'd rather just have him healthy certain times during the year and down the stretch. So I wouldn't be too concerned there either. You mentioned that the catching depth is a little light, and I I wonder what the club's expectations of uh, Luis Camposano are for this year. Like, What does he need to prove uh, in this campaign? Because he's been at times a highly touted prospect, but what's sort of the long-term prognosis for him? He probably, more than anything else, needs to just prove he can handle a, a, a big league pitching staff and prove he can handle the nuances of different pitchers and get on the same page with them. And I know it's a little bit of a different world now with, with pitch and pitchers calling pitches, but I think there's a lot to just a catcher understanding his pitchers and what they need to throw and being on the same page, especially in an era with a pitch timer and countdowns. And if, if you're not on the same page, maybe it kind of going awry with the pitching staff you're trying to lead. And so the realistic expectation, and this is why I think Austin Nola's health is, is so important is that he kind of slowly eases into that. The Padres have handed him this backup catcher role, which as we all know in 2023, there kind of is no such thing. He's going to catch two times a week, probably at minimum. And then maybe as the season progresses, because they like the upside of his bat and he's clearly got a lot of, there's, there's a lot of power potential there and he can torch left-handed pitching. I think they would like to see as the season moves on something of a more fairly even timeshare, but that's contingent upon Camposano kind of proving himself in terms of handling a pitching staff. 
You brought up Grisham before in his great defense. His offense was not what it had been last year. And it was interesting when he suddenly looked like his old self at the plate in the wildcard game or series and the NLDS. It was like, oh, right. Yeah, this Trent Grisham, he's really good. And then he kind of disappeared again in the NLCS. But he's immensely valuable if he is even like a league average hitter. So can he get back at least to that point? I think he can. I think league average is, is a completely reasonable expectation considering his skill set is, is, is he has some power, he has legitimate power, and he can work his way on base. So he's going to hit probably something like 220, 230, but still be a close to league average hitter if he does that. And considering what he brings defensively in center field, that's an extremely valuable player. He made some... Uh, he made some swing changes toward the end of last season. And I think there was some question like, man, what, why are we making these changes? Well, because it kind of can't get a whole lot worse than I, than what he was hitting last year. I think he was under 600 OPS batting about 180, and they really paid off in the, in, in the postseason, like just a better load and more smooth. And I think that kind of just, just maybe a mental tweak to, to be a little more aggressive. He's always been a guy who, really, really, really waits for the right pitch. And the Padres like that about him to an extent, but they'd prefer that he, maybe at least the, the threat that he'd swing earlier in a count or swing at a, he, he's so intent on working his way on base, which the Padres love about him, but there's damage that he can do because of the power that he has. And we saw that in the postseason last year. And so he's an interesting case this year. I think, I mean, I think he could be in for a big year because if he's the guy at the bottom of this, absolutely loaded lineup and all of a sudden you start thinking that all right if you're an opposing pitcher this is where you you take a deep breath well he can do that kind of damage and he can work his way on base and and I think there's a compounding effect there in the lineup where the pressure is kind of completely off him but he can also kind of make you pay for your mistakes so uh I I don't know what to expect from Trent Grisham moving forward but I suspect better than what we saw in 2022. Two of the guys who are new to the club who are going to be ahead of him in the lineup are two veterans, Nelson Cruz and Matt Carpenter. Cruz, it seemed like father time had maybe finally come for Nelson Cruz last year. I know that he had some eye issues that hopefully have been addressed. And then we had that great resurgence from Carpenter uh, before he had some injury issues. What what are San Diego's expectations for those two guys and kind of what made them comfortable um, bringing each of them in, given you know the the age and and injury concerns that you could reasonably have with both. Yeah, I think one of the things is that despite the age and the injury concerns you could have, they're not asking those guys to go out there and and take 500 at bats. I mean, they're essentially gonna they're gonna share a lot of time in the DH role. They're gonna serve as pinch hitters, and both of them signed with the Padres, fully knowing that that was the plan for them going forward. And so I think that's that's part of what made them comfortable with it because if you're signing Matt Carpenter and asking him to do what he did last season over 500 at bats, you're probably going to be disappointed. But if you're signing him and asking him to DH against right-handed pitching and serve as a bench bat against lefties, and I, I think you can reasonably expect closer to what he did last year. He's not going to be Babe Ruth again, but I, I still think he's – these signings just kind of fit what the Padres are trying to do. If you look at where – Last season, they had so many kind of stars in the, they had Soto and Machado, and they had guys who did different things at the top of their lineup and Cronenworth and Jerks and Profar, but they didn't have the depth that they had. And 
as much as signing Xander Bogarts and filling out the rotation and as, as important as all that was, I think one of AJ Preller's biggest priorities this off season was finding those kinds of guys who can make this a more complete offense. And suddenly that's what they have. And I think the Nelson Cruz contract was, it, it's so low risk. It was so low money. I think off the top of my head, it was, a, it was just a year and a million dollars. He wants to be in San Diego. He has a good relationship with a lot of these guys. He, he's, he's, I mean, Manny Machado, he's, Manny Machado has said that Nelson Cruz is one of his favorite players and he wants to play until he's as old as Nelson Cruz is now. And so Nelson Cruz is a, I think a nice fit for this, for the clubhouse. And the fact that he's bought into that role is, is valuable too. And if he bounces back, if, if the operation he had to kind of correct his vision works, there are more at bats for him to win. I mean, he can serve as DH and Matt Carpenter can, can play first and, uh, you can move Jake Cronenworth around the field. So I I think these guys just kind of fit uh, what the Padres are trying to do, maybe more than they would fit uh, a, a different team that could have that could have spent more or given them more at bats. Yeah, Cruz said the eye issue had been bothering him for about a year and a half, which lines up with when his offense started to decline. So it's intriguing, at least at his age. I don't know how much you can bet on a bounce back, but at least the timeline is interesting. I think when they got both Carpenter and Cruz and somehow squeezed them onto this roster, (laughs) we've been joking all winter about the Padres having more roster spots than every other team. And somehow when I look at them, they only have 40 players on their 40-man roster. So it's not actually the case, but somehow it, it seems like they just have, no, they just cram all those players in there and, and somehow it's not more players. I don't know how they do it. But I wanted to ask about two players they acquired at the trade deadline last uh, last, uh, last year. They, of course, made a splash at the deadline. When don't they? And I think pretty much every player they acquired probably didn't perform quite up to expectations. Soto, Hayter, Drury, Bell, etc. But by the postseason, at least September, October, Hayter looked like his old self. So what changes did he make? And are they confident that those changes will persist? And then is he another guy that they have thought about trying to extend because free agency is coming up soon? Yes, they've thought about it. I don't know whether that's uh, that, how, how real any of those talks are happening behind the scenes. I think they kind of, before they traded for Josh Hader at last year's trade deadline, they saw what they figured would be a mechanical fix that would take some time to, to happen. So I don't think they thought that right away Josh Hader would be Josh Hader again, because if you'll remember in the month and a half before the trade deadline was when he kind of was starting to struggle it was tough when he when he got here because the Padres were expecting him to be the guy locking down the ninth inning, but they were also in the middle of this really kind of tight National League wildcard race. They needed him to be the guy, and he wasn't. He blew a few saves and lost a couple games in the ninth inning, and all of a sudden he had to – they removed him from the closer role, which was not what they were preferring to do, but which may have ultimately helped in the long run because – uh, I'm I'm no pitching guru, but I don't think he was necessarily on the right plane and on the, kind of the right path in his delivery toward home plate. I think they made some changes, and pitching coach Ruben Niebla essentially said at one point in late August last year, you know what, I think it's time to get Josh Hader back in the closing role, and he saved a game in San Francisco. And from there, from that point in late August, he was essentially Josh Hader again. So. If that's what you're going off of, I think the Padres are expecting more of the same from Josh Hader in 2023 because 
from that point onward, he was, I think, maybe even better than he was. Now, in the postseason, he was hitting 100 miles an hour just kind of out of nowhere. He says that was kind of adrenaline-based, I think, more than anything else. I don't know that they're going to get that guy on March 30th, but the fact that, that Josh Hader's able to kind of hit 100 when he needs to and bring that velocity and obviously the slider, and he incorporated a changeup into some tough at-bats against right-handed hitters last year, uh, I would expect I would expect this year to be the old Josh Hader, the, the, the guy that we know can, uh, can lock down the end of games. I've learned my lesson. I'm not betting against Peter Seidler and A.J. Preller signing any player, extending any player, spending any amount of money. But Juan Soto, that seems like the ultimate challenge and the ultimate expenditure. Can they sign the Scott Boris represented Juan Soto to an extension? And how hard have they been trying or might they try? I'm not going to say no because I've learned my lesson. I didn't think they were going to make a big I didn't think they were going to make a big splash with Xander Bogarts. I didn't necessarily think they'd extend Machado when they did. And I've been proven wrong too many times to say they will not extend Juan Soto before he reaches free agency. So I'm not saying no. That said, it will be very difficult to do so. Juan Soto is Juan Soto. He will be hitting the free agent market earlier than like in the peak of his, in the peak of his career. And I think he could probably command as much money as anyone else we've ever seen in free agency. Um, He's a Scott Boris client and, and, Boris clients have a tendency to get to free agency. So I know the Padres have, have been interested in it. They're keeping those talks private if they're happening at all right now. There's a lot of time. And, and Juan Soto has said this every time we've asked him about that. When we ask him about his long-term future in San Diego, he has the same kind of answer, which is, hey, two years is a long time. And then from there, we'll see. And there, that is, it does feel very, very off into the future, uh, I think the Padres are definitely interested in doing so because why would you why would you not be interested in having Juan Soto around for the foreseeable future? He's obviously just such a good player and and the kind of like they already have quite a few cornerstones, but I mean just in terms of what he can do at the plate, he might be the the, the best hitter of the bunch. If if I had to guess one way or another, I would I would think that he reaches free agency just because of the value he can command and kind of the, the tendencies that we've seen with guys at his the, at where he is in his career. I just don't want to be proven wrong again, so I don't want to say anything definitively on that front. So I think you said earlier when we were talking about the Padres offseason, the Padres had money to spend. Clearly they have. So the question is how, I guess, or does this mean that every other team also has money to spend and is not spending it? The Padres are kind of the ultimate, well, if they can do it, why can't Team X do it? Even more than, say, the Mets, who are in New York and owned by Steve Cohen, etc. The Padres are a better kind of counter to a lot of uh, smaller market owners that say they can't afford to spend. So, how are the Padres making this work? What's the financial calculus for them? Do they care if they are profitable from year to year? Do they just want to win more than they want to turn a profit? And are they confident that their franchise will appreciate and that obviously they have generated a lot of interest? Just what are the inputs here that have made this viable? Yeah, it's so fascinating to see kind of where this goes from here. I think do they want to win more than they want to be profitable? The answer to that is is clearly yes. Peter Seidler is invested in this team winning, but it's not like they don't want to be profitable either. They're looking at this as a investment in themselves into the future and the fact that this is a unique situation in San Diego. Like everyone, I mean, it's, it's been really, really cool over the last few years to see the transformation into everyone in San Diego being excited about the Padres, everyone in San Diego being excited about 
the baseball team here. Uh, it's, it's cool. Just, just from a unbiased baseball perspective, it's a, kind of exactly what you want to see. And a lot of that is driven by the investment of the franchise and, and there will be a return on that investment because I think the Padres have already sold out something close to half their games and, and they've capped their season ticket sales because they essentially needed to leave some single game sales. The city is investing back into the Padres and, and that's what creating a roster and spending on a roster that is, World that has World Series ambitions will do. I don't know where it goes in terms of uh, of what the return on that investment will end up looking like, um, but I can I can tell you that the Padres are happy to kind of to kind of be the ones that test that model. There are some unique circumstances in San Diego in terms of what they can get done in a in a baseball only town, but they want to test the the, the theory that you know what if you win games and you build a star studded roster. Yes, you're going to have to spend money to do so, and and making a profit maybe second to to winning. But there are they they feel there's ways to make a profit with the group that they have because it's all of a sudden just such a baseball city, and so many people are bought in. And and as an end result, I guess we'll we'll have to wait a few years to find out what that does financially. I find the Padres bullpen fascinating. So we mentioned Pomeranz's situation. You mentioned Hader and the mechanical adjustments, which we started to see some of the um, sort of benefits of as time went on. Things looked very bad for him upon his initial uh, foray into San Diego and then kind of improved as as the season went on. And as he reached the postseason, they signed Robert Suarez to an extension this offseason. How do you see this bullpen fitting together and who might they turn to if Hater turns back into a pumpkin. I think Suarez is the guy. He was really, really good toward the end of last season, and he was really good in some big spots. We kind of started giving him the nickname Big Game Bob. Uh, and I, I know the Harper at-bat is the way it ended, and that home run sent the Phillies to the World Series and sent the Padres home, but I find a, I, I have a hard time finding fault with what Robert Suarez did in that at-bat because he threw a couple change-ups below the zone that there's not many hitters in the world who lay off those pitches and Bryce Harper's maybe one of them. And then even the fastball he threw, you kind of just tip your cap. So Robert Suarez would be the guy. I think he's the the plan now is to have him be the guy setting up Josh Hader. If Josh Hader reaches free agency, I could see the Padres turning to Suarez as, as their closer going forward. The question marks for me are behind those two. I mean, Luis Garcia and Tim Hill are very interesting pieces and one's a, One's a right-hander, one's a left-hander. They're kind of perfect in those setup roles. They were really good last season, but bullpens are tricky. And if there's any regression, I think the Padres thought they had some other options that they that they may now have injury concerns with, Pomerantz being one of them, Adrian Morey-Hone. Craig Stammen was having a pretty nice spring until now it looks like his career might be over because of a shoulder injury. The depth that the Padres felt they had built in their bullpen, it might not be there right now, but there's still kind of some interesting pieces that, if everything clicks right, it could be a really, really good bullpen. And if it if it doesn't, if if a couple of these guys regress, well, now you're now you don't necessarily have the depth that you you built yourself. Jose Castillo is another guy who who has been who is really really good stuff, but has been plagued by injuries, and he's only thrown one major league inning in the last three years. So on paper, if you're looking at what the Padres bullpen could be, if you're looking at Josh Hader in the ninth and Robert Suarez and Drew Pomerantz pitching high leverage and Tim Hill, Luis Garcia's setup options and Nabil Krismat as the long man and maybe Steven Wilson 
kind of filling in where you need and another long relief option like Jay Groom, like that is a really good bullpen on paper. Bullpens don't work on paper usually. So we'll see, we'll see where this goes during the season. Our next segment is about the Cincinnati Reds, who were a seller at the trade deadline last year. In fact, they traded Brenda Drury to the Padres, and the Padres were the team that added. Actually, I guess the Reds are uh, Will Myers' new team, so there's a lot of links between these two franchises. But the Padres went all in at the deadline, not for the first time. That's uh, kind of the Preller trademark. But I don't think they made a single trade this winter, right? And I guess there are only so many spots at which they could add, in theory, when the deadline rolls around again. And then I guess there's also the question about resources, not even just money, but prospect capital, right? Because the Padres just have traded an entire farm (laughs) system's worth or two of prospects over the past several years. It's impressive that they have any left, but obviously their farm system rankings have fallen pretty precipitously and understandably. So... Do they have the wherewithal in terms of prospects or money to make additions at the deadline if needed? And gosh, are there even any places where you expect them to need to upgrade at that point because they've done so much already? Yeah, I guess right now, probably you'd probably say they don't necessarily have those spots to add, but then the trade deadline will come along and one or two guys will be hurt or someone will be struggling. And then the question is all of a sudden different Then it's a little more pressing. And I think I think the answer to your question is yes. Like they've, they've shown that in the right spots, they're willing to spend money and they have just enough left in their farm system, kind of some, some higher end pieces where if they need to go and get something, they could, they could get it done. Now they would really prefer not to do that. I mean, obviously who wouldn't prefer to be fully healthy and have all your guys clicking and to, to be at the point where you don't have to deal from your farm system at the deadline, but the Padres have sacrificed so much over the past at last season's trade deadline they gave away a lot and in the previous offseason and the offseason before that they gave away a lot I mean this was once the best farm system in baseball and now it's kind of toward the bottom of of the league AJ Preller has said multiple times that he's extremely committed to kind of rejuvenating that and I don't get the sense that that that's a commitment to rejuvenating it so they can just go trade it away again at this year's trade deadline I think they really kind of want to start building something. But again, this is a team with championship aspirations in 2023. And if they have a chance to do something that will give them a significant boost in those title odds, I think they could go do it. And the farm system is, it is thin. It's not as, it's not as robust as it once was, but there's guys like, like Jackson Merrill and Ethan Salas and Dylan Lesko who kind of project as really, really intriguing prospects in the long term. The Padres would prefer to avoid dealing from, from that group. And so I guess that's where development and finding some fringe guys in the draft, some guys who might be farther away, that's, that's where those come into play. Um, but they, I mean, they've rebuilt their farm system before. They built their farm system. They traded a lot of guys in the 2020-2021 offseason and somehow had enough resources to then a year and a half later go out and acquire Juan Soto and Josh Hader and Brandon Drury and Josh Bell at the trade deadline with another, with another excellent farm system. So I don't know how long it'll take. But they're they're committed to doing to, to building this back into a really, really strong farm system. So we always end by asking what would constitute a successful season for this team. The Padres did beat the Dodgers in the playoffs. They have not yet done so in the division. So that seems like a goal and a very realistic goal, according to the projections. So how good do they have to be, basically, to make this season a success? I think the Dodgers are the goal. They have to have a better season than the Dodgers. They have to 
whether it's winning the division or beating them in the playoffs, this thing has kind of been put in motion since AJ Preller got here to chase down the Dodgers to, to narrow the gap. And I, if you look at the rosters, it looks like the gap has been narrowed, if not closed entirely. Um, but they have to go out and prove that on the field. And they did that in four games last October, which were exhilarating and the city of San Diego responded, but they've finished. I think I just looked this up in, in the last 12 years, they finished behind the Dodgers every season. And it's been by an average of, of over 20 games. So there is still that, that kind of hurdle they have to clear, which is finishing either ahead of the Dodgers in the West or, or, or beating them in the postseason and kind of using that to springboard them into bigger success. Now, look, it's obviously, it's obviously a successful season if they win a pennant or a World Series, but if the Padres, if the Padres win the division, get themselves one of those two first-round buys into the division series and set themselves up for an October run, I think we all know kind of how things can sometimes be left to chance once you get that far. But if the Padres give the city of San Diego that kind of a run with kind of the good vibes that are already all over the place right now, I mean, the Padres won the offseason again and they're winning the World Series of good vibes. Like if, if those all kind of come to fruition in a serious playoff run and maybe a division title, I think that would be more than enough to constitute a successful season for the Padres. One last thing we mentioned, just the franchise values, and it just so happens that Forbes released its valuations today. The Yankees have now cracked the $7 billion barrier, but the Padres are, are one of the teams, like the Reds, involved in the Diamond Sports bankruptcy and a Bally Sports broadcast team, and Forbes has kept the valuations for almost all of those teams flat just because of the uncertainty about losing local television revenue, but... They have the Padres up 11% again because their stadium revenue tickets, suites, advertising should compensate, they say, for any decline in local TV revenue. So that's good news for the Padres. But I did want to ask, just because people are always asking, is this sustainable? And typically the Padres respond by saying, well, we think the risk is not spending, not investing, right? Or they'll sort of dodge the question and say, oh, the question is, uh, what will our World Series parade look like, right? But what do you think they view their window as being if they view themselves as having a window if they're not perpetual contenders like the Dodgers like if at some point these investments do start to pile up I think for 2026 the Padres already have the second most money committed of any team behind the Yankees so is there a point at which it might be difficult to maintain this and they feel like we have to make hay before then or are they just refusing to limit themselves in that way yeah, they really don't like us talking about sustain- sustainability and windows and all that, but it's it's completely fair given, I don't know, it feels it feels unprecedented that a team like the Padres would, would do what they've done, and I think it's a fair question to ask. The window for me is as long as, as long as Manny Machado and Xander Bogarts are in their prime and you've got two more years of Juan Soto, like, there's a very clear window in the here and now, and from there, it comes down to what the Padres are willing to do spending wise after that and whether the Padres can reboot their farm system and turn it, whether AJ Preller can turn it into a, a top tier farm system again, like he's done essentially twice as, as general manager. I, I'm looking at this window and, and it, to me, it looks like the next two, three, four seasons, the Padres should be very, very good. And then there are questions after that. They're not looking at it that way, and maybe they're maybe they're just so focused in the present, or maybe they're committed to continuing to spend down the road if it if it takes more then because you've got some aging superstars. But I, to to answer the question about whether it's whether it's sustainable, I mean, I think there's a reason they deflect 
and talk about wanting to whether the World Series parade is going to be on a boat or on land, and and that's just Peter Seidler being facetious. But it's because I, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what it's going to look like, and and how these stars are going to age, and and what the roster is going to be. And I think there's just kind of supreme confidence in what this group can accomplish in the here and now, and figure out the later later. Yeah, and I think as long as they do well in the next few years, do really well, Padres fans will probably accept whatever comes next. <laughs> yep. but, <laughs> all right. Well, we will find out what happens next from AJ at MLB.com and also on Twitter at his name, AJ Caspell. Thank you very much, AJ. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Let's take one more quick break and we'll be back with C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic to discuss the Cincinnati Reds. We are back, and we are joined now by C. Trent Rosecrans, a senior writer for The Athletic, a Star Wars fan, a notable beard wearer, an effectively wild listener. We could go on, but he is the senior writer for the Reds. He covers the Cincinnati Reds, and that is why we are talking to him today. Hello, Trent. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. I I think we could probably find more interesting topics or exciting (laughs) topics, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know... (laughs) We, we do have a new season of The Mandalorian. We haven't talked about Andor yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So many things. Maybe you can hop on one of our Patreon pods and we'll do a Star Wars episode <laughs> and give Meg the month off. But we'll we'll do our best to make the Reds interesting. So, uh, you know, early last season, the vibes surrounding the Reds were about as bad as could be. You had the offseason trades. You had the Nick Kral aligning our payroll with our resources quote. You had the Phil Castellini, where are you going to go quote. And then, of course, you had the 3-22 and start. And... No, I think a lot of people stopped paying attention to the Reds after that, if they were paying attention to them at all. But after the 3-22 and start, the Reds weren't half bad. Well, maybe they were half bad, but half bad was a big improvement because after the 3-22, and they finished 59-78, and which was only the 10th fewest wins over that span. So... What went wrong during the 3-22 and start? Obviously, some luck's got to go against you to lose that many games in that few games. But how did they right the ship to some extent? Because that improved record came even though they continued to subtract from the roster during the season. Well, but they also added, you know, you, you Luis Castillo started on the IL. Uh, you had just a ton of guys on the IL. You right. also had uh, Jonathan India, Tyler Stevenson getting getting hurt and what was it's so weird. So like one of the beauties of covering the reds is that you always start at home except for last year. So it's like, Oh, that first road trip. No, no, no. It wasn't the first road trip last year. It was the first like real road trip because we started in Atlanta, came home for two games and then went on the road to California. And, and that was a big part of it too. Like, Oh, let's see Braves for four to start. Guardians for two, Shane Bieber, um, one of those games. Uh, the next game, somebody, I think the next game was Lodolo's MLB debut. 
Uh, then they go on the road to either, I think it was LA for three or four in San Diego. It, it, it was not, you know, it was one of those things. I, I remember last year saying at the beginning of the year, like, Hey, David, uh, to David Bell, it's like, David, you guys could play pretty well and start like, you know, 10 and 20, just looking at the schedule. And at the time, I didn't think I was being optimistic, but apparently I was. <laughs> but like in that in that road trip to to L.A., they lose Jonathan India in L.A. and um, Tyler Stevenson in San Diego, and it just it just it just kind of went from there. It's like everything that could go wrong last year did. I, I, I'm trying to remember the exact date and how long they went without a pitcher like pitching. I think it was even like five full innings until Connor Overton did it like a month into the season. Um, they, they had that combination of short spring young pitchers. And so the, the, that was very difficult uh, last season to kind of overcome. And it, it, it took a while for those, you know, young pitchers to a get built up and B get comfortable. But when they did, you look at it and that top three of Hunter green, Nick Lodolo, Graham Ashcraft is, it was, it was pretty good. Like I've seen some bad rotations in my time here. Um, I think after 2015, after the, the sell, the sell off in 2015, they went from Mike Leake on, I think it was like the 30th of July starting to rookie pitchers the rest of the year. Yeah, we will definitely want to ask you about the top of that rotation because it is pretty impressive. I did want to ask you about one other change that happened in the middle of last season because it wasn't just that the Reds started playing better at the major league level, but also I think they sort of changed the perception and perhaps the reality of the farm system in the middle of the season too because even though they had already started a sell-off and sort of a fire sale or a tear down or whatever we want to call it aligning payroll with resources their trades prior to the middle of the season i think were seen as sort of underwhelming in terms of the return but then in dealing castillo and brandon drury and tyler malley etc the returns that they got from those trades really boosted them and, and were well regarded and just to cite mlb pipeline for instance i think they went from having the 15th ranked farm system preseason to the fourth ranked farm system midseason which is around where you might find them now according to some outlets so yeah i think pipeline has them at five yesterday so yeah so so take us behind those midseason trades like if you're gonna trade luis castillo which you know you'd rather have him but you have to nail that you have to actually get good players back so what did they do differently in those deals or or how did they do well for themselves in those deals one of the biggest things, and, and this goes back, I, I remember sitting in um, Pittsburgh at in twenty was it twenty one? <laughs> the end of the year, they all kind of run together. But yeah, it was at the end of twenty twenty one, sitting in Pittsburgh in the box with Nick Crawl, and we're talking. And he said, "The one thing we cannot do is make the mistake that we made in the Dodgers deal, which is where we sell off prospects to." get rid of big contracts. And that was Homer Bailey to the Dodgers along with um, Jeter Downs and Josiah Gray uh, for what looked like a bunch of like big names. But when, when it kind of, when you look back at it between Yasiel Puig, Matt Kemp, Alex Wood and Kyle Farmer, Kyle Farmer did the most for the Reds. 
that, that, that trade did not work out as they had hoped. And then the Dodgers used Josiah Gray to get Max Scherzer and Cheater Downs to get Mookie Betts. And you just look at it in, in, in retrospect and like, woof. Um, the, the Reds did not trade Josiah Gray and um, Cheater Downs for Mookie Betts and Max Scherzer. Uh, so, so yeah, so I think that was the biggest thing is like, you know, you, you can, you can talk about the aligned payroll with resources. No general manager has ever come up with that and wanted to say that <laughs> that is, those are marching orders. He's repeating marching orders. Nick hasn't said that to me, but come on, we all know that. Um, mm-hmm. Nick crawl really concentrated on doing the best long-term deals he could, which is, is, is to his credit because that ledger, the 100 loss season, just the second one in Red's history, goes on his ledger. Yet he kind of stayed the course and he wasn't going to give up Luis Castillo just to give him up. He wanted to maximize that return. And the it's one of those deals that if you're the Mariners, I'd do it again too. And if I'm the Reds, I think I'd do it too, especially if you know that ownership is not going to give you the resources you need to sign Luis Castillo long-term. I think, I think I actually know Luis Castillo would have taken that extension with the Reds. It was the Reds side, not Nick crawl, the Reds ownership that did not want to give him that deal. So if that's going to happen, you maximize it. The, the Mariners probably knew that talking to his, his people so that they were more comfortable giving up what they did, which was a pretty good package. Yeah. And that, that pretty good package has reinforced um, a real strength of this farm system and organization more generally, which is the the infield depth at the prospect level for Cincinnati is is enviable. We're gonna keep, we're gonna start with like good stuff, good stuff, and then we'll talk about some of the stuff at the big league level that's less good. But there are the guys who they have signed and brought in. Right, we'll talk about Ellie De La Cruz, I imagine here, but just more generally as we look through the the guys who are top 100 prospects for us at Fangraphs, you know, you have Cruz, you have Spencer Steer, you have Edwin Arroyo, you have Cam Collier, you have Noel V. Marte, you know, they have this, this group. And I imagine that they want some of those guys to be big league contributors and part of the next good Reds team. But do you get the sense that they are, are also looking at those guys as potential resources in trade to bring in other big leaguers or other prospects who might fill other areas of need? Sure. Sure. And I think that's one of those things. It's always that when do you move those prospects and to do it for the right reason, not to get rid of payroll now. And that is a big thing you're looking on. And I, I didn't mention this before. There's nobody on a guaranteed deal next year because Joey Votto has an option. Um, so that is that is pretty pretty big. Um, and when you look at it, I, I, one of the things I love about the way that you guys at Fangraphs uh, do your prospect rankings is, and I understand everybody has different editorial ways to do it and and spaces and constraints. But you guys kind of basically do, well, we're not going to rank 10 or 20 or 30 or some round number. We're going to do <laughs> what we think. No, no, no. But it makes sense. It's like what we think actually matters, right? Yeah. If you only have 15 prospects that you think are actual prospects, you don't rank them, right? 
And what you guys do is you kind of go like, okay, here's the guys we think are actual guys. And when you have 46, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't look around it as much. Um, all the other teams, but I would think 46 is on the pretty high side for what you guys list, right? Yeah. And that's good. That's what you want. I hope so. <laughs> As the editor, I'm sure you're like, okay, let's keep it at 12. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you have 46, that's, I don't know. I, I, I think that speaks to what they're trying to do. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Ellie De La Cruz wasn't on anybody's list. Right. Even if it went to 46. Now, there are a lot of special circumstances in that. One, he's a unicorn. B, uh, you had the whole missing 2020 season. And before that, he was just some kid in the Dominican who was like 6'1 and lanky and who knew what he would do. And then he comes back 6'3, 6'4, 6'5, whatever the heck he is, and just mashes when he gets to Arizona. And 21, two years later, which is like from a 16 year old kid to an 18 year old, like the man. So it's, it's, I don't remember where this question started, but I swear there's a point <laughs> in there somewhere. Well, maybe we can just stick on Cruz for a second. You know, you, you've noted his incredible size. We do have some recent big league precedent for a player that big sticking at shortstop or at least trying to stick at shortstop. But what what do you view as his long-term trajectory? Do you think that he will be able to stay there? And when might Reds fans get to enjoy the Ellie De La Cruz era in Cincinnati? Yeah, I think Ellie can stay at short. Will he is a different question. Those are always two different questions. Um and a lot of it depends on everything else. You know, right now you're seeing Jose Barrero play a little bit in center field because his instincts are off the chart. And um, But he's been playing phenomenally at shortstop, like defensively. Um, but, you know, you, you have that ability to move him around. He could play center field. I could see Ellie De La Cruz in center and just be like, all right, we're going to take some stuff off your off your shoulders. Just go out and play center and hit the ball really hard, run really fast, do what you do. And I could see that happening. I, I, I would expect, I honestly expect Ellie De La Cruz to make his debut this year. Um, we'll see how it goes, but the, the guy is just, he is, I went down last year. I probably saw him in about, I don't know, 10, 12 games last year in the minors. And every game, he did something. He stands out, not just because he's tall, um, but like just the way he moves, all the skills he has. I mean, his skills are are remarkable. I wanted to ask you about three positions where the Reds project to be the worst team in baseball, <laughs> which is too many. You don't want that many. And, and maybe this will be the low and then we can work up to the high of the rotation and we'll leave everyone on a positive note. But one of them is shortstop. The Reds have the worst projected shortstops at the major league level this year. The other one, well, one of the other ones is center field. So those are the two positions that you just named in connection to De La Cruz. So I guess tell us about how those positions shape up right now, because, of course, you have Nick Senzel and how is he doing? And that's always kind of the question about Nick Senzel. And then you sort of have stop gaps at shortstop for now. So. Which one of those positions does De La Cruz reinforce, and how will those positions perform in his absence? 
Right. Well, it's it's actually kind of set up when you look at it for Ellie to take advantage of it because the shortstop right now it's Jose Barrero, former top prospect for the team. Um, kind of, you know, you talk about a guy who has had just he got rushed up too quickly because it was 2020, um, and 2020 really messed with him like it messed with so many of us, but just in different ways. Um, he got to the big leagues and just the hope was that, yeah, they didn't have a shortstop and that he could kind of fill it in. Freddie Galvis did not look like he was still a starting shortstop for a team that had, that made the playoffs. So he got kind of rushed up. It was obvious that his bat wasn't ready. He goes back to AAA the next year and, and it plays really well in AAA, comes up, struggles a little bit more. Last year, he starts the season um, with a broken handmade bone, or was that the year before? They all kind of run together. Anyway, <laughs> he has not had that 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 progression, and you see it. And the hope is that you know he could be that guy. If not, maybe he goes to center. Maybe it's like I said with De La Cruz, you just like free some things up in his mind and let him go run around. Um, Nixon Zell is hurt to start the season. Um, we'll start the season probably in Louisville. Got into a game in the Cactus League on um, Wednesday night for the first time. So that's good stuff. But that's the other part when you're talking about when you acquire talent, you acquire middle out, right? Position players. Like, oh, what are they going to do with all these shortstops? Well, you know who played shortstop in high school and probably in college? Every good right-handed player in the majors, right? <laughs> shortstops become other things. And so if you build through shortstops, like it looks like probably Marte was nominally a shortstop. He, he's not going to be a shortstop. He's going to be a corner something, whether it's outfielder, infielder, um, yeah. his body. Like, I don't know. Have you seen him in person, Meg? Yeah. In, in fall league, it was, it was clear that he's not a shortstop anymore. Well, it, yeah. Like you look at him from behind, he looks like Manny Machado. Now, yeah. He does not have the athleticism, I think, of Manny Machado. Yeah. Uh, Manny Machado, when we're speaking of like these great people, but his just like that was the first thing that jumped into my mind when I saw him. It's like, oh, he's going to play third or first. Christian Encarnacion Strand, same thing, and he's going to hit. Uh, Spencer Steer is more second third. He's he's this team's starting third baseman. Um, uh, Arroyo is probably the guy that you say, this is the true shortstop. And I think Ellie De La Cruz can play. it. I, I really do. And people I talk to say he can, he can do just about anything he puts his mind to. Um, and I, I, I think he's probably smoother in the field than what I've seen from O'Neill Cruz. Um, hits the ball is hard, runs faster. It's there. And um, so again, I think they have this glut and we didn't even talk about Matt McLean. Matt McLean was a top 100 guy the year last year and got an aggressive placement into double a struggled a little bit. He's looked great this year. You know, that's a guy that you don't want to sleep on Matt McLean. I, I could see him debuting before Ellie or any of these guys. So again, he could play second. Maybe he could go over to third. I don't know if he quite has the arm for third, you know, you could do a lot of different things with McLean as well. So like they just have those guys that could move other places. But that's a good problem to have. If you're going to have too many things, and then we didn't even talk to Cam Collier, who's much, much lower. Um, like, shoot, he should be a senior in high school, but here he is 
in, in a big league or in a camp. So shortstop and center field were two of the three positions where the Reds have the lowest war projection. According to the Fangraphs have charts, the third, sadly, is first base, where Joey Votto plays. So you've talked to Joey Votto as much as anyone in the media. You've uh, created as much content surrounding Joey Votto as anyone has, and it's all been great. Don't let out my secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would not be great for you if uh, Joey Votto's not on the Reds anymore. But I, I wonder, I mean... First of all, he has surprised us and defied time and projections before. So do you think he can do that again? And what model of Vado might we see? Will we see the grip it and rip it Vado that had success recently before the injuries? Or will we see the more passive patient Vado from the past? And then I guess the question is, if he can come back to some extent, is this it for him? Is this it for him with the Reds? Will he finish the season with the Reds? If he's playing well enough that a contending team would want him, would Reds fans release him? Would they let him go to explore the playoffs again? Or would they want him to be a career Red? And obviously, you'd be sorry to see him go either way. So it's a lot of questions. What do you have? <laughs> what do you think is in store for Joey Votto this season? Predicting Joey Votto over the last couple of years has been impossible. I've basically just given up on that because <laughs> it, it, it goes back to my my basic Joey Votto theory, which is you can tell me anything about Joey Votto and I'll believe it. <laughs> um, it, it just it just it, it it starts and ends there. Um, the last time I said, "No, nope, this is it. He's done." Um, he went out and then like homered in eight straight games and <laughs> turned into, uh, you know, a down ballot MVP, uh, a candidate. So like, uh, I, I just don't know. And it, it depends on like how much of it was that injury that he said he had been playing with for a couple of years. What does he look like when he comes back? He's been back in games. I think he'll be ready for opening day. Um, just kind of the preparation I've seen. Um, he's, he looked like his first couple games, he looked terrible. And then now he's been hitting the ball hard, um, just doing some other things. I, I just, again, I'll, I'll stick with my, you can't see me, but it's kind of that shrug emoji. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, the further question about where does he end the season or next year? Um, ultimately that's up to Joey, you know, and, Again, it sounds repetitive here, but I don't try to predict Joey. Um, I know that playing with one organization his entire career is important to him. Um, that is something that he kind of looks at, and he looks at the, you know, the Johnny Benches, the George Bretts, um, those kind of guys. And there's something about that that means something to him. Cincinnati does mean something to him. Uh, so it's, it's just impossible to predict anything with Joey. And it's funny because like you think about so much of his career, he was the easiest guy to predict. All you knew was like, okay, I think it was what, like an eight year span. He had the highest on base percentage. He led the league in on base. And was it like six of those years just lost to Bryce Harper in the first Bryce Harper MVP year, um, by like a, a hundredth of a point. And then the other year he was injured. And every other year he's leading the league in on base percentage from like 2010 to 2018 or something like crazy, seven. Um, so you used to be able to predict him, and now 
it's just, I mean, it's like everything everywhere all at once. You know, you, you, you have no idea if he's just going to come out with hot dog fingers and mash it. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know how to transition to Hunter Green from that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he does not have hot dog fingers. He does, not have, he does not have hot dog fingers, which I'm sure he's happy about. That seems like it would make pitching hard. Um, and right now it sounds, in this conversation, it sounds good not to have a trophy. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um he had a he had a very strange rookie year. It it ended up being mm-hmm. kind of okay. It started really rough. I think that Green is sort of an interesting guy for us to look at as we're trying to understand the importance of fastball shape in addition to velocity. The beginning of his rookie season was really rough. He dealt with velocity fluctuation throughout. He had the IL stint for the shoulder strain. Things seemed to improve as the season went on. Um, but for a guy who throws as hard as he can and is as reliant on the fastball as he is, it it was um, – at times concerning, hopefully promising. So where where do things stand with Hunter Green now? How is he trying to refine the arsenal? And what do you expect from him in 2023? I kind of like where he is. I feel pretty confident about him. You know, it's one of those things where we, it's, it's tough to replicate big league hitters, right? Especially when you have such an outlier where everything you throw is 100. Like, you know, he averaged something. Like, you go through your whole life until probably parts of AAA and even still in AAA, you, you, you get by with that. And somebody can tell you, well, that's not going to work here, but until, um, <laughs> until you do, yes, that's my great ringer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did say he was the Star Wars uh, fan. <laughs> you know, uh, you, until you see it up close, it's easy to believe like, well, nobody's, yeah, it's like, it's like the nuclear luch. Well, they haven't seen mine. Yeah, they have. And I think there was a learning curve there. There's something about pitching up and like, you know, people told them, Hey, you know, people see your fastball pretty good. Even if it's one Oh two, they still see it pretty good. Well, I think there was some learning and some figuring things out. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, I don't bet against a guy who can throw 40, 50, hundred mile an hour pitches in a game. Yeah, he's obviously been a popular breakout prick this spring, which if you look at just how he pitched down the stretch last season, I know he didn't pitch much, but when he did pitch, it was extraordinary. So he just he went through a couple evolutions last year, I guess, just mixing in non-fastballs and then changing the fastball. You look at his first two starts, he beat the Braves in his debut, uh, then went into Dodger Stadium and was really good there. So yeah, so that's kind of where it is he's he's just somebody who can keep going and then we promised that we would talk about the rest of that top trio so give us uh lodolo and ashcraft not as spectacular as green but impressive and promising yeah you know you'd start with lodolo who was the guy i i think if you ask some people if they were like okay long-term future you can even do this green or lodolo Mm-hmm. They're guys who are going to take Lodolo, um, big left-hander, high draft pick, really kind of outlier breaking ball. He calls it, I forget which one. It's one of those things like he calls it a curveball. Other guys call it, some of his catchers will call it a slider. It's a breaking ball, whatever it is. But it's this big sweeping slider 
more or less, that I, I was looking it up. He led the league last year with hit batters and 19, with 19 hit batters. And I think 16 of those were to right-handers. And 14 of those were on that, 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 that breaking ball. And it's because it starts outside, breaks all the way, and will hit the back foot. It's that back foot slider. It's just the most extreme version of it. And a lot of those you see guys like swinging. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slider that hits them in the back foot, but yet they're, they're swinging at it. And it's a, it's a really outlier pitch. And he's got other good stuff. So he, he's a guy that, you know, they feel pretty good with him, number two. And then you go Ashcraft. And I did this thing. It's actually on The Athletic on Thursday? Thursday. And I always, every spring, I go to every catcher and just say, what's the best pitch you caught this year? And I had like three of them, all the veteran catchers went with Lodolo pitches. I mean, not Lodolo, uh, Ashcraft pitches. And two of them, Tyler Stevenson and, and Kirk Casale, were like, it's just the combo of the cutter and the, and the two-seamer. And it's just like they, they're tunnel perfectly and they're both at a hundred and so that's tough and then he's really added a slider this spring that's looked really good this spring you know ashcraft is a guy that is just an uncomfortable at bat anybody who goes against him and that's a that's a pretty good starting spot if you have three guys in their second season they'll have their ups and downs but if you have three guys that you say we feel pretty good in our rotation one two three it's not a terrible place to start Yes, although you do also have to finish somewhere, and that is maybe more of a problem. So, so that's your one, two, three. How do you feel about the four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, however many they end up going? <laughs> yeah, they, they and, and there were a lot last year. Um, we saw that beyond those guys. Um, you probably start the season. Well, let's go with Luis Sessa. Sessa has come from the bullpen. Um, finished the year as a starter last year. He's in his, his free agent year. Wanted to be a starter. Was at Team Mexico. Left Team Mexico early because they weren't pitching him, um, which might be a bad thing too. Uh, but I, I think Sessa's one of those guys who can be a perfectly serviceable swing guy. Um, he could go back to the bullpen if it doesn't work. Connor Overton, not really exciting, but um, he will start in there probably in the rotation. You, they signed Luke Weaver, who's a little bit behind, hoping you get some of that Derek Johnson magic. And um, yeah, there's, there's, then you go to prospects. You know, Levi Stout is a guy that they got from Minnesota that they really like. Uh, Brandon Williamson had a tough first year in the organization. He came over in the Winker Suarez trade. Um, he is, <laughs> Lodolo is like best friend, college teammate, and they're both six five lefties, and they look nothing alike as pitchers, which is just kind of funny. Um, so they have some of those guys. I think on the little more future, you're talking about um, Connor Phillips, who also came in that deal, who I really like. That's my guy that I like maybe as much as any pitcher in the org. Um, so yeah, so there's some there's some talent, but I mean that's baseball right now, right? Who's who's not searching for the back part? Hell, you have t- the, the 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 division leader or the division favorite. You're searching for the front part. 
one thing, hmm, I'm trying to like uh, construct a pained, uh, a strained transition to Jonathan India from the rotation. Can I do it? Mm, he's <laughs> well, searching for strained hamstring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, okay. You here's, here's your transition. Last year, you know, he goes from rookie of the year. And we just talked about all these rookie pitchers, and they had that second year hiccup. Jonathan India, right? Yeah. And what a hiccup it was. As you noted, he went from a, a great rookie campaign to, you know, pulling a hamstring and then not really looking the same after he returned at all. So how much of his sophomore swoon do you attribute to the injury and how much is other stuff that he might need to figure out as he moves forward into 2023? I think a big part of it was the injury, but I also think coming into 2022, was a little different. It, it goes to the eye test. You know, he bulked up and was, I think he said he was at 225 last year. Um, he did, he hit the weights hard. He trained with Nick Castellanos, who was his buddy, the, the South Florida guy. Um, Jonathan Nibia's father is, was, is, I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but like a competitive bodybuilder. Um, so he got like, he was like, oh, I'm going to get built up and strong. And, and hit more home runs, which is something that Great American Ballpark can can help, but it can also put it in your head. So he did that, and I think his body just wasn't what he was the year before. He was trying to be something else. You look at him this year, he's kind of said, okay, that was a mistake. I want to be that 2020, 2021 guy, which is just kind of a table setter. Um, he's he looks a lot more athletic this year. Um, you can tell because, and he needed to, because we, we talked about the bat last year, but defensively he was not good. And then you take away shifts. That that was a problematic combination. Uh, but but he's looked much better this year. Um, he looks athletic and is moving. So you hope that you get something closer to 2021 than 2022. So before we ask the final question, wanted to ask what you think the future of the Reds is financially, because, of course, you have the Castellinis who are less extremely wealthy than most MLB owners, it is true, and perhaps not always willing to spend as much as even they could within their means. And then you have the question of what their means will be. The Reds are one of the Bally sports teams, right, with the ongoing Diamond Sports Group bankruptcy here. And they were the team that Joe Sheehan used in a recent newsletter of his about how possibly the collapse of the RSN model could exacerbate the differences among teams just based on markets and local revenue. Not that the Reds have been really making bank with their local TV revenue exactly, but it might still be hard for them to make even what they have been making. So do you think the Castellinis want to get out of the baseball business at some point? Will they just have more and more dire quotes and off-putting quotes as the years go on? And as the Reds hopefully get a youth movement going here and build back up toward contention, are they an ownership group that could potentially surround those young players with more expensive veterans? Yeah, and that is interesting. And the ownership groups are really what we're talking about here. It's not, you know, Bob Castellini doesn't own 100% of this team. He owns, we don't have an exact number. <laughs> Ken Rosenthal and I kind of went on this quest earlier this year. He owns a bit, 
and 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 probably the most he does own the most um but <laughs> in this limited partnership like he's the only one who matters when it comes down to it uh bob is in his 80s that is that plays into all of this i don't think you know <laughs> at the beginning of spring training we have these availabilities with rob manfred and i asked rob manfred basically like, hey, what do you think of uh, – I mean, if you want to get into it. My question was, Bill Castellini, eh? And his his response was, yeah, not good, dude. Um, so that's kind of – basically what I'm saying is, at some point, Bob Castellini will no longer be in charge. Who is the control person after that? Will Major League Baseball and its owners allow Phil Castellini to take over? and continue in that role. Let's just say I don't think they're big fans of <laughs> Phil Castellini um, for several reasons. So does that happen? And is it the same group, but a different leadership going forward? It's a long way of saying, I don't know, but mm-hmm. things will change. I don't think Bob is looking to sell. I don't think he wants to sell. Bob is a very competitive person, and sometimes that gets in the way. Um, I joke a lot of times that he's the best and worst things that happened to the Reds. I mean, it's not like Reds ownership was the shining beacon for many years before that, right? Marge shot, and then you had a caretaker after that in um, the Lindner family till they sold to the Castellinis. So you went from somebody who cared – cared about the bottom line, had many problematic things to a caretaker didn't really care who was just kind of waiting um, to make things okay. And you kind of saw it in the ballpark where it was just done. What's going to happen? Let's not care about it. Let's just get it done and do bare minimum. And then when Castellini came over, they kept trying to like add on to it, but it almost looked like, uh, you know, sometimes it's like the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, <laughs> The truck. It's just like one thing added on to another. It's like, hey, let's put a rocking chair on top of this ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of emblematic of where this franchise has been over the last 30 years. All right. So we always end by asking what would constitute a successful season. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> you knew this was coming. <laughs> I know. I forget. I'm not very bright, Meg. You know this. You've talked to me long enough. You've listened to me today. Um, we are asking a, a bigger picture, just what would be a successful season for the Reds? So the question, where are you going to go? Are Reds fans going to go back to the ballpark to see this Reds team? What would they use as the criteria to gauge at the end of the season whether this was a successful one, whether they made the progress that they should be making towards their future? Well, I, here here it is, actually, and this is one that's going to take so maybe this time next year to see it opening day isn't sold out right now. That's the first time anybody I know of in town can, can remember that. And, and that is kind of a combination of Phil and last season and the trades and all that, but they have not sold out opening day. And that just doesn't happen in Cincinnati. I mean, you could see 10 grand on, on the second game, but you will always see the sellout in the first game. And right now that's not happening. If they sell out opening day next year, 
that is the step forward. That would probably take some of those young starters not to take a monumental step back and for someone like Ellie De La Cruz to come up at flash. And if that happens, I think you're feeling much better. All right. Well, you can read Trent's coverage of the Reds at The Athletic. You can find him at Trent on Twitter. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Trent. You're welcome. All right. Why don't we do a pass blast, which comes to us from 1985 and from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. David writes, this is another one that is perhaps a bit better known than the typical pass blast. However, this one is a special tribute to my late grandfather, Bud, who loved this story and was the first to tell me about it. So 1985. Plimpton and Sports Illustrated pull off April Fool's prank. Mm. In 1985, Sports Illustrated editor Mark Mulvoy realized that the weekly magazine would publish an issue on April 1st. He employed legendary writer George Plimpton to write an April Fool's piece, first intended to be a compilation of sports-related pranks throughout the years. When Plimpton could not find enough material to craft a story, Mulvoy gave him the go-ahead to come up with an original hoax. Thus was born the curious case of Sid Finch, the mythical story of a 28-year-old pitcher named Hayden Sid Finch, who was discovered on a backfield in Maine and threw a 168-mile-per-hour fastball. Boy, in retrospect, they really went for it, didn't they? I mean, 168 miles per hour. They could have gone with 120. That would have been just as impossible or improbable. Especially at the time, yeah. Yeah, especially then. You'd think that this would be too implausible to work, but it wasn't. Let's read on. Plimpton invented a backstory for his protagonist that included being raised in an orphanage in England, briefly attending and dropping out of Harvard, masterfully playing the French horn, and learning to throw a baseball during a trip to Tibet. Plimpton's opening paragraph read, He's a pitcher, part yogi and part recluse, impressively liberated from our opulent lifestyle, Sid's deciding about yoga and his future in baseball. If one read just the first letter of each word in this passage, it would spell out, Happy April Fool's Day, ah, fib. Despite the clue left by Plimpton, the story fooled many. Despite the clue, despite the 160 mile, 168 mile per hour pitcher, too, forget about the clue. Mets fans flooded Sports Illustrated's office with letters requesting more information on the prospect. <laughs> New York media outlets complained that the Mets allowed Sports Illustrated to break the story. <laughs> So they got got to reportedly rival general managers contacted Commissioner Peter Uberoth about Finch. Incredible. In the article, Plimpton wrote that Finch was still deciding whether or not he wanted to pursue a career in professional baseball. The Mets held a press conference shortly after the publication of the article in which Finch's retirement from baseball was officially announced, ending fans' hopes of a truly unhittable pitcher. In their April 15th issue, Sports Illustrated admitted the story was a hoax and explained the backstory. Plimpton later expanded the story into a full-length novel, published in 1987. And eventually, of course, they had Noah Syndergaard who tried to throw 168 miles per hour but didn't quite make it. But really, different time, different era. This was not that long ago, right? This was uh, right before we were born, so I'd like to think it was not that long ago. And the fact that people fell for this and 
the fact that you could have convinced anyone of this, like maybe it speaks to just the different media environment and the extent of the coverage that we expect, because now even spring training is covered really in real time. I mean, we have beat writers tweeting about it, sending photos, videos. It's all very visible. We can watch a lot of the games. And aside from just the impossibility of the story, like it would not take long, even if it were a little more plausible to to reveal it as a hoax, because we're just more aware of what's going on, I guess, in the world generally, which is not always a good thing. Perhaps we are too aware of things that are going on in the world and it makes us upset sometimes. But also in baseball specifically, people are so plugged into prospects in a way that they were not in 1985 and just so connected via social media, via video, etc., that you would not really be able to pull this off. Not that they were even necessarily expecting it to work as well as it did, but I just don't think you could come up with anything comparable now that would actually last for more than an hour. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, not that the publications wouldn't entertain like satire, but I, I think that a news gathering organization in our current environment would be reticent to be like, we're going to fake them out because that... <laughs> you know, doesn't read great right now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I tend to find April Fool's pretty tiresome anyway. Yeah. So Jeez. I'm not saying bring back April Fool's baseball hoaxes, but I, I like satire. I'd be fine with a, sure. being fooled by a fun baseball story, but I just, I don't think we are, I don't know. I, I don't want to say that we're not as gullible. I think <laughs> we certainly are or brainwashed or whatever. People believe things that are not true still. I don't know if you've noticed that Mick, but this specifically a sports hoax of this magnitude i mean i don't know people are gonna write in with uh recent comps probably and and certainly there have been some things maybe along these lines but a player showing up with uh unsuspected and previously unseen superpowers it's just the sort of thing that you would not be able to maintain very long i don't think in this media yeah, environment i agree All right. And today's trivia answers. So the head-to-head all-time Reds Padres record courtesy of the website StatMuse. The Cincinnati Reds are 343 and 302 against the Padres all-time. And then courtesy of Ryan Nelson, frequent StatBlast consultant, the player answers. So the top five batters in career war who had played for both the Padres and the Reds at some point, Jim Edmonds didn't immediately come to my mind padre and red jim edmonds mike cameron tony fernandez reggie sanders and ron gant Mm. top five pitchers david wells danny jackson aaron harang who was i think an answer for our a's mets podcast as well mike caldwell and matt latos so some guys who were associated with these franchises and some that i had to do a double take and remind myself that they actually played for them because uh the jim edmonds padres career lasted 26 games and the jim edmonds reds career lasted 13 games <laughs> so yeah that's that's a pretty good trivia answer i don't know how many people would have gotten that but if you did congrats and then the first batter to have played for both teams was tony gonzalez who completed the duo in 1969 and the pitchers were Jack Balshun, Jack, you can't shun the ball, you're a pitcher, and Billy McCool. McCool. Billy McCool, also in 1969. That's when the Padres started. 
Okay, that will do it for today and this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. And thanks to the husband and wife duo of Alex Glossman and Ali Brenneman for today's Effectively Wild theme song. We are still accepting submissions via podcast at Fangraphs.com. So if you want to send us a roughly one-minute ditty with about half of that consisting of lyrics, the inbox is open. Got a good note here from listener Eric, who writes, How can you not be pedantic about the 20 to 80 scale? In the most recent episode, Ben noted that a model ranked Otani's game-winning pitch as an 81 on the 20 to 80 scale. Technically, you know you're in for an excellent point when a paragraph starts with technically, the 20 to 80 scale really extends infinitely, though for most cases there is no need to extend beyond 20 to 80 because that will cover 99.7% of the data. If 50 is an average slider, then 60 is a slider one standard deviation above the mean slider, 70 is a slider two standard deviations above the mean, etc. This means an 81 slider is a slider that is 3.1 standard deviations above the mean. Assuming a normal distribution, this means that Otani's slider was better than 99.9% of other sliders thrown. Good point, Eric. Appreciate the clarification. Also, one small but important correction to make. On our last episode, I conflated two different Seinfeld episodes. I can see why I made this mistake, but the episode where George Costanza tries to leave meetings and rooms and go out on a high note, that's the season nine episode, The Burning. That is a different episode from the one where George tries to deliver his comeback that he thought of too late while the jerk store called and they're running out of you. That was the season eight episode, The Comeback. Both great, but my mistake. Also, we We did a stat blast last time about Ichiro Kano and how high a combined career war total you can make taking major leaguers and adding up the highest war ever produced by someone with the same first name and the highest war produced by someone with the same last name. We noted that the highest ever is Alex Cobb, who combines Alex Rodriguez's war and Ty Cobb's war. Well, I haven't confirmed this with frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson, but it seems like on the spreadsheet he put together, someone noticed Cy Young has been shorted some war. He appears to have been undercounted, and if that is the case, then Alex Cobb probably should not be first. It should be the guy we thought was third, Babe Young, because Babe Young gets 181 war from Babe Ruth and then 131.5 from Cy Young for a total of 312.5 war. That would put him first by a fair amount. Of course, Cano himself doesn't rank very highly on the combined war list because he only gets credit for Robinson Chirinos and Jose Cano and Chirinos sub-replacement level. Anyway, we went from that stat blast to a pass blast about Jackie Robinson. And this is not an error, but an oversight. What I should have or could have noted is that Robinson Cano himself is named after Jackie Robinson. Hate to miss an obvious segue, so I've been kicking myself just like George was when he couldn't come up with the jerk store line in time. And lastly, I'll read you an email we got from listener Chris W., who writes, I'm listening to episode 1981 while eating ice cream in a room illuminated by a single black light. I am not, however, currently high, a fact that I'm sure may come as a surprise. To cut to the chase, I think the answer to the question you received about how big the bases would need to be before baseball irrevocably changes is 45 inches. Hear me out. Google tells me that an average six-foot man has arms that are 35 to 37 inches. If we add a little more to account for greater athleticism, that means that a 45-inch base would be longer than the reach of most typical fielders. A first baseman might not be able to hold the runner on as easily because the runner could avoid the reach of the tag. It also means that fielding a position could be greatly altered because a first baseman couldn't hug the foul line with a 45-inch base as they'd be unable to tag the runner on a pickoff. Depending on how the longer bases affect the base pass, having 45-inch bases could drastically 
drastically change rundowns with a wider base path, maybe say twice the size of the current one. The runner would have the latitude to spin and juke around tags as well as modulate their path to the base such that they made sure they came in contact with the ball as it was being thrown from fielder to fielder. So there you have it, my blacklight ice cream fueled take. This all goes to crap, of course, if home is counted as one of the bases. If that were the case, literally one extra inch of width at home plate would mean that every pitcher with a decent sweeper would become Greg Maddox. Thanks for all the great times and horny baseball talk. You're welcome, Chris. We have one team preview podcast to go. Two teams, the Braves and the Rockies. We will get to that early next week, and then we will have a couple other fun episodes for you, some drafts and games, perhaps, because it's the week of opening day. We're almost there. And you can usher us into a new MLB regular season by supporting the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Neil, Jonathan, Robert Nishkian, or Nishkian, Kenneth, and Silverhand. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, which you're going to want to join in time for the regular season. There are channels where you can talk about each team. You can talk about games that are going on. You can talk about general baseball news. You can talk about anything, really. And all of our Patreon supporters are entitled to access to that group. You can also get access to monthly bonus podcasts, plus playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free fangrass memberships and many other goodies. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact us through the Patreon site, and we will know that it's coming from a Patreon supporter. But you can always email us at podcast.fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance today and this week. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to wrap up the offseason early next week 1985 it's like my dream is coming alive looking around and i don't understand why does the calendar say 2010 it's 1985 live in the past and trying to survive a new adventure's about to begin because we went back in time again to